This morning's reading is Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the, the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zachur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. 
But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you two are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joadah, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favour, my God. This is God's word. If we're not met, uh, my name's Matt. Uh, I'm a vicar here. And um, if you've not been here, it's the last week in Nehemiah. I hope it works. I hope it makes sense. Uh, It's been a great story. But let me pray as we look at this together. Our great God and Father, thank you. Thank you that uh, every word of this book and this story this morning, you have written for our good and our instruction because we need to learn the lessons. We need to hear the world, heed the warnings and be encouraged by your promises. Father, speak. Speak so that we can hear clearly and know how to respond this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, family holidays last August, we did well. We made it across to um, uh, San Francisco and did some of the obvious uh, touristy-type things, uh, including uh, cycling across uh, the Golden Gate Bridge. And I might look at Do you like my snap? That's my holiday snap. Um, Do you want to see some? No. Um, But it's the obvious thing to do when you're there and uh, when you're on the sort of shoreline, there was a gazillion sellers or vendors saying, grab a bicycle from us and cycle across the most famous bridge in the world. And the sort of annoying Englishman says, but but Tower Bridge is in London. (laughs) And they sort of look confused, um, because they, you know, sarcasm or or that sort of, uh, no, it's okay, I'll I'll take one of your bicycles, okay. People from Sydney might like their bridge more than yours, though. Uh, 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 And people people get very, anyway, enough of that. But, um, and uh, you cycle across, and... uh, very pleasant. And, um, but you're given a load of trivia along with this. So including the, uh, the great question, um, how often does the bridge need to be painted? One or two might know. Uh, how often does the Golden Gate Bridge need to be painted? And the answer is 
It's constantly painted. They never stop painting it because, um, well, because most of the time it looks like this in the fog. This is, this is like the normal view. Have we got the normal view? Maybe not. But uh, most of the time it's completely covered in fog. There we go. That's what it normally looks like. Uh, and so the salt water in the air, I'm off-piste, um, means it rusts very quickly. So you've just got to constantly keep painting it to protect the, the, the metal, otherwise it'll rust and the whole thing will collapse. So it's just constantly being painted. There's a crew just doing it every day of the year. Now, can you imagine, uh, if you're nerdy like me, do you want to know how often Sydney Harbour Bridge is painted? Every five years. Tower Bridge? Every 25 years. That's, that's absolutely irrelevant, but it's just if you're nerdy like me. <laughs> uh, because we don't have fog like that, obviously. Now, can you imagine, though, that your job is, what do you do for a living? Oh, I paint the bridge. I paint the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh, right. For a living. Yeah. Right. I mean, surely you'll get the job done at some point. Nice. Or never finish. Oh, does that not find you frustrating? I mean, I'm, for those of us who are completer finishers, that might be a bit disappointing. No, we're just always doing it. It's never going to be finished. Can you imagine doing that job for 10 years? What have you achieved at the end of 10 years? What, what is the, the demonstrable outworking of your labors? What's new? Well, it's still there. Great. Actually, actually, that is great. Because if the bridge collapsed, it would be a complete nuisance. I mean, not just because it's one of the most famous bridges in the world and it's good for tourism, but no doubt it's good for infrastructure as well and getting across the bay. And, um, and no doubt over the years since it's been built, it's pretty significant in the growth of the city and the industry and, and it, it, things would be much harder. It would be less affluent as a place without the bridge. To be honest, just keeping the thing up is really helpful for a lot of people day to day, year to year. It's really important for the growth of the city. So don't belittle keeping up the bridge. It's an important job. Now, look, so what? Um, I thought of that, or it came into my head, when reading Nehemiah chapter 13. Because after a sensational account, really, of Nehemiah going to this broken city and rebuilding the walls, a broken people and rebuilding them spiritually. It's been a great, yay, yay, oh, adversity, but yay, triumph over adversity. And you get to chapter 13 and it's, I mean, what a magnificent final sentence to a book. I purified the priests, I assigned them duties, and I made provision for contributions of wood. I mean, that is not going down there as one of the great last lines of history. It's, dare I say, boring. So why does the book finish like this? I mean, it's a flat ending. But let me suggest to you that in the end of Nehemiah, in chapter 13, you have both realism and great encouragement what have I achieved, Nehemiah functionally says at the end of this book? 
Oh, actually, more than you've realized, Nehemiah, and um, God will remember each and everything you've done. And the Lord will reward you for each and everything that you've done in his service. Be of good heart, Nehemiah, even though there's lots of reasons to feel a bit flat at the end of this book. It is in the last week. Uh, uh, we've spent a couple of months looking at the book of Nehemiah. Um, as I say, a broken city being rebuilt, a broken people uh, being restored. Uh, chapters 8 to 10 in particular, looking at the sort of reformation in the people, they're, they're, them uh, coming to the Lord and, and, and committing themselves to, to listening to the Scriptures. Chapter 9, this extraordinary prayer of repentance. Uh, and chapter 10, this we are committing to serve you, this solemn declaration of you were here last week. We will serve you. Uh, at the end of chapter 9, verse 38, we're putting together a, a binding agreement. We're putting it in writing and our leaders, we're all affixing our seals to it. We declare before the whole country, we will do this. We will serve the Lord. And chapter 13, it's, but I haven't. <laughs> I just haven't. Um, now, and that's what we're looking at today. Chapter 11 and 12, we've skipped over uh, a little bit. You can read them in your own time. Uh, if you feel shortchanged, you can tell me off afterwards. But chapter 11, you can see the point. The city's repopulated. This long list of names of people who moved back to the city is uh, chapter 11. And you and I might think that's a bit dull, but you just need to remember they're real people with fears. Is this the right thing to do? With hopes, hopefully the Lord will bless us now. Anxieties, is this going to screw up our kids' education by moving here? Won't we be safer in the countryside? They're real people. And so it's a demonstration of faith, chapter 11, that they move back. And then chapter 12, they have a party because everything's gone so brilliantly. The, people, the walls have been restored. The people have been restored. And so they have a party. Uh, in chapter 12, so verse 28, they hire in the best musicians that the country's got to offer. They have a couple of choirs, uh, we're told. I, I enjoy this little throwaway comment of verse 43. On that day, they offer great sacrifices. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. This is a big party. They, tump up the, they pump up the bass, and you didn't even need to be in the city. You just could hear the <coughs> emanating from um, of the drums uh, and <laughs> zizzers and cymbals, etc. Um, hey! Now that, uh, chapter 12, verse 43, that is a good last line, Right? The, the walls have been restored. The people have been restored to relationship with the Lord. There's repentance. There's dedication. There's commitment. And they have a party to celebrate. And they sing and they sing, we love the Lord and we're going to follow him. That's a great way to end the book. But it doesn't. So two things we're going to look at. The two, the two dominant notes of chapter 13. There's a warning and an encouragement. The people forgot their binding agreement. But Nehemiah asked God to remember his service. Just two things. Okay. First is a bit of a warning. The people forgot their binding agreement. So um, verse 6, we're told that Nehemiah has gone back to, uh, to the king of, of uh, Babylon, Artaxerxes. He's gone back to the capital city for some time. We don't know how long. But when he returns, there are three things he needs to address. Three times we're told he has to rebuke the people. Three issues, verse 11, I rebuke them. Verse 17, I rebuke them. Verse 25, I rebuke them. Three ways they've returned to their old patterns of sin. And at the end of each section, Nehemiah says, oh, they've, 
They've gone awry, but remember me. They've gone awry, but remember me. So the three, and I've scribbled them down, but let's work through them quickly. The reason they matter is, well, back in chapter 10, all three of them, they had explicitly said, we will make a solemn agreement. We're going to do this, Lord. We're not going to let you down on this one, Lord. And in these three areas, they do well, the complete opposite. So first, they neglect the house of the Lord, verses 4 to 14. Uh, verse 4, Eliashib, the priest, he um, clears out one of the storerooms in the temple and allows Tobiah to move in or have it as his um, pied de terre in the city and provides Tobiah, verse 5, with a large room formerly used to... St- whoa, 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 Tobiah? Well, well, if you've been here the last couple of months, Tobiah, he's like the baddie. He's like Voldemort, you know, boo, you know, when Tobiah comes on screen, you know, that's not good. Ten times he's been mentioned in the book. And uh, chapter two, he's mocked them for their efforts to build. Chapter four, he sent soldiers to try and knock down the building work. Chapter six, he tried to assassinate Nehemiah. uh, And then he just ruins his reputation publicly. He's the bad guy. Oh, and he's been allowed to move into the temple and have a bedroom there, or a suite of rooms there. What? Why would you do that? I mean, Nehemiah says, this is, verse 7, evil. Verse 8, he's greatly displeased. He throws out Tobias' household goods out of the room. He gave orders to purify the rooms and put back the equipment of the house of God. He's sort of, it's a bit Jesus-like, isn't it? Uh, Obviously, Jesus coming later, but casting people out of the temple who just shouldn't be there. There's a righteous anger that Nehemiah demonstrates. Now, why has Eliashib done this? Allowed Tobiah to move in. Well, there's favoritism. Verse 4, we were told that Eliashib was closely associated with, related to, you're just going to make a judgment on how you translate that. He's either a good friend of or a relative of Tobiah. So he just compromises for someone who's influential. He compromises for a friend. Should not allow Tobiah in. But Tobiah will do a favor back for him. Tobiah, you know, he's a relative after all. So why have they gone wrong here? They've compromised for the influential. Well, that's a timeless danger, I guess, even in the church. It's been a um, sort of very bizarre, I, mean, I don't know how much you pick up at these things, but the last two years, even just in the UK, the, the number of well-known ministers who've had to resign due to uh, inappropriate sexual behavior or bullying, it's been very high in the last couple of years, something about the COVID revealing these things. But one of the striking phrases that emerges is, yeah, well, we, we kind of knew what he was like, but yeah, look, we, we knew he wasn't ideal in that area, but, but he's just quite an influential guy, and we didn't want to take him on. Yeah, watch out for that. That's why they neglect the house of God, because they don't want to mess with the influential guy. 
The second half of that is, is in 10 to 14 because Tobiah is, is in the temple, so there's nowhere to store the food, so they don't pay. <laughs> they don't pay the Levites to work at the temple. So all, the, all the, the staff of the temple have to go and work elsewhere back in their fields because they've got no money. I, I guess the, the parallel will be, look, the kingdom of God will never flourish if you don't pay people to work to grow the kingdom of God. If you don't pay church workers, if you don't pay those in the mission field, if you don't pay, the kingdom of God won't grow if you don't pay. I mean, that's the obvious point being made here. I'm grateful that's taken seriously here. I think there are lots of churches and Christian organizations where the attitude is, let's just pay as little as we possibly can um, because you know, we ought to pay something to have someone lead a church or, or help run a church, but let's keep it as small as we possibly can. Well, that sort of mindset, you'll never grow the kingdom of God. So I am thankful that that has never been the case here as far as I'm aware. And as we do indeed, as you, many will know, try and employ a new head of operations, you've got to pay them rightly. You can't not fund the work of the kingdom, and expect it to grow. So the people here, they're, they're rebuked, verse 11, they're rebuked for neglecting the growth of the kingdom, the house of God. But in many ways, what's the most depressing thing is what they'd said previously. I mean, there's a, back in chapter 10, 39, it's the reference on the sheet, but chapter 10, verse 39, at the end of a long description of everything they're going to do, the people declare, we will not neglect the house of our God. Chapter 13, Nehemiah says, you have neglected the house of your God. That's the first. And the other two are the, are the same in many ways. Uh, so secondly, verses 15 to 22, more briefly, they preferred pro prophets to piety. So again, back in, um, back in chapter 10, verse, where are we? Chapter 10 and verse 31, the people had declared... Oh, look, when, when our neighboring nations bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we'll not buy from them on the Sabbath. We'll, 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 we declare we'll not do that. Here in chapter 13, verse 15, oh, in those days, I saw the people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and other kinds of loads, and they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath, verse 16, and they were, the merchants from the other cities were coming in. Well, this, is, this is terrible. Chapter 10, we will not buy from the merchants when they try to sell goods on the, sun, on the Sabbath. And they do. And even worse than that, they're like working themselves. So Nehemiah says, well, verse 17 I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, why is, excuse me, what is this wicked? Strong, isn't it? What is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? And um, then he gives them a history lesson. You do, you do remember, don't you, that this is, why, this is why Jerusalem was in such a mess, why the city was destroyed, in part, was because we broke the Sabbath day. What are you doing? And so Nehemiah very practically locks the gates and puts some of his more loyal and beefy, intimidating soldiers on the gates, and so that puts an end to, uh, to the trade because he cares deeply, verse 21, about honouring the Lord. So he protects 
things that way. So uh, for you and me, what, what do we make of that? Well, don't, first of all, I guess, don't put profit above piety. I mean, that would be the most obvious thing, I guess, from that. They're, they're just work, work, work to the neglect of honoring the Lord. Don't do that. I guess more specifically, without going into great detail, don't fail to rest. When we... I'm giving you a theology of the Sabbath in one minute. When we rest from our labors, we are declaring, I'm a creature made to be in relationship with my God. And so I don't need to work all the time. I stop my work to remind myself I'm made for him. And the Sabbath in the Old Testament, which in simple terms I would suggest you take a day of rest off your labours in the New Covenant, the, you are, it is a window into eternity when you say, I am made for more than this world and its labours. And a failure to stop work is saying, I'm just a creature of this world and there is nothing more. But when you down your tools, you're saying, I see eternity and I see where I'm going. I'm made for the Lord. Uh, they prefer uh, profit to piety. Uh, lastly, one of these things, they were unfaithful in marriage, verses 23 to 29. Again, chapter 10 and verse 30, they had declared, we promise, chapter 10, verse 30, not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. And what do we find them doing here? Just that, precisely that, verse 23. In those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Nothing wrong with marrying someone of a different race, but the greatest love story of the Old Testament is Boaz and Ruth, probably, uh, and they're from different nations. But don't marry someone who's not a believer, is his point. I mean, the outcome is, verse 24, half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples. They didn't know how to speak the language of Judah. How do you expect your children to grow up as believers? They can't even read the Bible, says Nehemiah. What is your priority here? Come on. And so his response is, let me euphemistically say passionate, I guess. Verse 25, I rebuked them and called down curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Um, that's not our practice here, generally. Um, uh, there's no comment is made upon this. I mean, it's not a model to follow, but no comment is made upon that apart from there's a zeal here. Let me leave it at that. Gives them another history lesson. You do remember, of course, this is how Solomon went down the pan from being the greatest king we had in terms of the expansion of our country because he kept marrying unbelievers. And that's the three. So in three ways they declared, we will be faithful and follow the Lord. And in three ways, Nehemiah says, we've not done that, and you've not done that, and you've not done that. So it's a pretty discouraging picture when he goes away. It's not, if some, many here will be in uh, small groups and looking at 1 Thessalonians at the moment. That's a very different letter, isn't it? Paul says, I've been away, and you're going great. I hear all these wonderful news. And sometimes it works like that. But here, Nehemiah says, I've been away, and I've come back, and you're a shocker. Everything you've promised, you've just failed. So it's a little dispiriting. But there's realism here, too. There are differences, we'll come to them at the end. But uh, for us, 
this side even of the work of Jesus Christ, the, the, the church, his church, it's never reformed once for all. It's never, well, the church is going well and therefore it'll always go well. Every church is a little bit like the Golden Gate Bridge. It needs constant attention. Every church needs the word of God shaping it. Or each individual church will rust, collapse spiritually. So we have to have the word of God central and listen to King Jesus speak to us. Tragically, there are plenty of churches that have had a wonderful ministry. They change a minister and maybe 10 years later, 15 years, it's rusting. A few more years, it's gone. A once thriving church is immoral and empty. Actually, it doesn't take super long. You stop painting, the rust can gather pretty quickly. You stop the scriptures being central. It can go wrong before you know it. And one very practical for us as a church, a current frustration is that, um, I mean, most wouldn't know this, so that's fine, but um, there are, I mean, recent, again, a couple of years or so, a lot of very healthy evangelical, mostly Anglican churches that can't find ministers to go there because there's just a shortage of people being trained and going into ministry. So you have these churches which have been great for generations and no one to take them on. Now that is a tragedy. That's a disaster. That is why we as a church are absolutely committed to doing what we can to raise people up and send them off and say, you've got to go. A number have got to go into ministry. It's a great privilege and there's an enormous need. There is not a surplus of ministers out there. The people forgot their binding agreement. You and I need to remember the church is never reformed once for all. It's never established in a way that can't go off the rails. Constant attention through the scriptures, through the preaching of the word of God is needed. More people going to ministry are required. It needs another generation of painter decorators, pastor teachers, same thing. Um, that's what's required. That's the warning. The people forgot their binding agreements. Let's go positive. Nehemiah. Nehemiah is still the good guy, and he asked people to remember his service in chapter 13. Three times then, at the end of each of these sections, when the people have gone wrong, three times he says, remember me. Remember me, Lord. So verse 14, remember me for this, my God, and don't plot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God in its service. In other words, remember me, Lord, and will there be some fruit that lasts? Don't let everything be blotted out that I've done. Would there be lasting fruit here, Lord? Verse 22, remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Look, just remember what I've done, please, here. You get the, the, the negative one, slightly different. Verse 29, remember them, those who've gone astray, and judge them rightly. But then at the last of the three about him, Verse 30, I purified, I assigned, I made provision. Very boring. Remember me with favor. Oh, my God, remember me. 
I think it's fair to say that one or two of those I've read on Nehemiah, they, they vary in their assessment of him, particularly chapter 13 when he gets angry. But what we mustn't do is say, well, everything that Nehemiah did, the people turned away from, so it was a waste of time. You can't say that. It's a bit like saying, well, the Golden Gate Bridge, it still needs painting. So what people have done for the last 100 years is a waste of time. No, they've kept it up. They've kept it going. They've kept it functioning and useful for people. And Nehemiah, well, his reforming zeal gave Israel health and spiritual vitality and clarity for a new season of their life. And making a difference for a season is making a difference. Here in chapter 13, he appoints reliable men and, and faithful men. He, he, sets a, he sets a platform. Does it last? No, not forever. But still a great deal was achieved by him. Remember me, Lord. Remember how I lived, Lord, how I acted, Lord. So can I, can I encourage you here? Uh, now, there'll be a variety in the room, of course. You, you may be a visitor. You're most welcome. You, you, you may be a student here for, for three years. and think, well, I'm only here for three years um, as a student, or my job will only be in London for three years, uh, and then, um, then I'll move on. Or it could be that you're here for 20-plus years and have a more obvious role in shaping the church and, and, and directing it and, and, and leading things and leading groups. Either way... Until the Lord Jesus returns, there'll be triumphs, things will go well, and there'll be setbacks, things will go badly. There'll be frustrations, there will be periods where it just feels like we're painting the bridge again. We did this last year, we're doing it again. We did this three years ago, we're doing it again. We're doing it again. We're just doing the same things over again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but faithfully serving the Lord year in, year out. Sometimes you can see amazing results. Sometimes everything just keeps on going. But he remembers. He remembers everything you do in his service. You might think what you've done has achieved wonderful things. You might think your labors for the Lord don't seem to have done a great deal. But he remembers and he knows. I don't think I'm just preaching this to myself, although I do need to hear it. Deep down, when we think clearly if we're Christians, all of us want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Now come. Come share your master's happiness. We know deep down that is what we want to hear when we arrive in glory. We know that. We'll be encouraged. Everything you do, even if sometimes it ebbs and it flows, and you think, well, I've spent years investing in these people, and now they've married Ammonites again. Oh, the Lord knows. He knows. And so if I could put it in these terms, don't forget and then you'll be remembered. The people forgot their binding agreement. Nehemiah asked God to remember his service. For you and for me, don't forget. Then you'll be remembered. Churches, 
Churches need to be constantly reformed, constantly shaped by the word of God or the drift. But that is true of you and me as well. We sing often. We'll sing it at the end, I think. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Here's my heart. Come take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. We sing that often because we know it's true that our tendency is to drift and we need God to bring us back. Now, there is a difference between us and those in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. We live this side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the last history book of the Old Testament. It's a pretty mixed note. The difference now, this side of the work of Jesus Christ, his cross and resurrection, is that forgiveness is once and for all, and if you're a follower of his, his spirit dwells within you and does change your heart. So you and I should have a different expectation to the inhabitants of Jerusalem in 450 BC. We should expect that knowing what Jesus has done for us keeps us looking forward. We should expect that even though we'll wander, the Spirit of God will bring us back and stop us from falling away like they did. We should expect those things. And so don't forget the promises of Jesus. Don't forget that trusting him takes you to paradise. Don't forget that he rewards you for your labors. It may feel in this life that we're constantly painting to prevent rust and decay. We're constantly battling sin personally, constantly having to keep going at church to see things moving forward or even staying still sometimes. Hey, I know that. But a day is coming when we enter the new creation and our labor cease. And the Lord Jesus says to each and every one, I remember. I remember everything you have done. You've been faithful with a few things. Now come. Come enter your master's joy. Don't forget that promise. Don't forget to keep looking forward. And we can expect the joy of being remembered for all we've done for him. Let's pray together. Hey, great God and Father, this is not how I would have ended the book of Nehemiah, not how many of us perhaps would have ended this book on a pretty flat note, on a note which questions quite what has been achieved. But thank you that you're a good father. You know exactly what it is that we need. Here is realism, that sometimes our labours seem to go a little bit backwards, that not everything we invest in, not every person we invest in flourishes in the kingdom of God. But thank you, Father, that that's not the end. Thank you that even in Nehemiah's day, that faithful servant of yours could say, I trust that you'll remember everything I've done, Lord. And one day we'll stand with him, seeing his vindication in glory. Thank you, Father, that we're not in the same position as those inhabitants of Jerusalem. We're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that it is his work that guarantees us entry into paradise, and we trust him. 
we know that it's his reward that we look forward to. So Father, keep us looking forward. Keep us with our eyes on eternity. So here and now we labour in your service and look forward to well done. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.